Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Compass Point. My name is Spencer Amaral. And I'm Bailey Amaral. Glad to be back with you guys. We've been looking forward to talking with you guys about an issue that has come up a lot lately. Um, Another issue that's rather violent about whether or not to tear down all of these statues around us. And it's especially become a big issue over the last couple of months. Um, Really some in some surprising ways to me. It has. And Bailey and I wanted to talk about it for a bit today because we think it is actually a very interesting conversation that pulls a lot of different things into it. And so we're going to try to flesh it out right now. But, you know, I think that this is a very controversial topic because people feel very strongly. Very true. But as with most things that are very polarized, there isn't a whole lot of meeting in the middle Mm-hmm. And discussing the the you know the finer more nuanced points. Well, that's of part the discussion. of the problem here is that especially this summer we've seen a lot of tearing down of statues and not a lot of discussion and you know an actually reasoned debate of hey there's a statue in our you know town center that is problematic for X Y and Z reasons uh, and so nobody's actually asking the important question and, and we actually do want to ask the question today of you know why. Should we or should we not leave up statues right. of people who did bad things? Exactly. So, I and I also want to take, you know, I love history. I love American history. And it's not my idea to start pulling down statues. But I want to give a fair hearing to the people who feel very strongly about this. Um, so, and to be fair, I remember having a conversation last summer with someone um and we were talking about statues, and and I acknowledged that, you know what, I hadn't really thought of it this way before, but it is weird when you think that we do have statues, especially in the South, mm-hmm. that celebrate Confederate war heroes who did technically fight against our country. And that yep. seems very unusual. And I'll totally grant that. But I've had another year to think about it. You know? <laughs> and something that has struck me um, is not so much how this might affect me today, but, you know, I wanted to look back at the history of, well, why do we build these statues in the first place? Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of heart or movement in, in the heart of the nation did this reflect? And first of all, the first thing we should acknowledge is that, okay, when, when did a lot of these statues come up? A lot of the Robert E. Lee statues and Stonewall Jackson statues did come up during the era of Jim Crow, when the South was segregated, um, there was a whole lot of systemic racism codified by law. Um, society was segregated. Blacks were not treated as truly equal. Even, you know, even if we said separate but equal, it didn't work out that way. So that's a problem that a lot of these statues went up at a time when, you know, for sure, it was in some people's mind a uh, a middle finger to black America. It was a, a white fist in the air especially in the South, the South will rise again kind of vibe. You know, we were right then and we haven't forgotten about it and we, the South will rise again. I even grew up hearing people say that. And of course, most of the time it was funny. It was not meant as a a real war cry or anything. But, you know, for some people, I'm sure that it was that for them. It was a celebration of their heroes because they, uh, you know, they thought of it as the lost cause. And um, there was also a move immediately after the Civil War, to romanticize the the antebellum South, mm-hmm. right? So antebellum just is Latin for pre-war South. And, 
you see this with movies like Gone with the Wind, which was a novel first, then was turned into a movie. Mm-hmm. And Gone with the Wind is all about the life of, you know, these um, very well-to-do plantation owners, this plantation-owning family in Georgia. Deep South. Just before the war and then during and after the war. The cool thing is that it, it it's a great novel. It's a great story because that's a very, uh, it was a crazy time. So that drama is always going to be entertaining of seeing what life was like for people in that situation. You also, you know, see those people who start off as very rich plantation owners become humanized because they lose the plantation. Mm-hmm. They lose all the slaves. Their life becomes very miserable when the South loses the war and they have to start over again with nothing. Mm-hmm. And so there was this move to romanticize the antebellum South and the plight of, of Confederates after the war. And for some people, I'm sure that, you know, there were efforts to put up Robert E. Lee statues as a way of um, kind of passively saying, well, we were right and we haven't forgotten. And (laughs) sure, maybe that was what it was to some people. But when I walk down the street and I see a Robert E. Lee statue, that's not what I think of. What I think of is this was a guy who, whether he fought against the country or not, this was an American. And in fact, he fought for our country in the Mexican-American War. Uh, he was uh, really accomplished in that war. He was accomplished in his military career before the Civil War. He was the commandant of West Point. And did you mention that he was recruited by both sides to lead their armies? He was, he was. But the long story short is that Robert E. Lee was a brilliant general. Mm -hmm. Genius. And I loved reading military history as a kid, and I would read all about Robert E. Lee's generals because I was so fascinated, fascinated by his level of tactical genius. And definitely one of the greatest military minds I think America has ever produced. So I grew growing up, I took pride in him as a, as a fellow American, ironically, you know, even though he did fight against the country. But I think part of the reason why I was capable of looking back on Robert E. Lee and looking at him as a fellow American is because, A, we won the war. The North won mm. the war and we stayed united. If the South had won the war and there were two countries, you know, and we were looking at him as like the leader of the revolution that started that breakaway country, and now we don't talk to those people anymore. <laughs> it would be totally different, right? But the North won the war, so that's number one. And number two, this is the thing that I don't think anyone's talking about today. The whole point of winning the war was to keep the Union together. Exactly. And how do you keep the Union together if you run around as soon as the fighting's done and you start killing all of the people who ever fought against you and butchering their memory and assassinating them, you know, in the press and in history books. That's no longer really a union. Then you're really right. simply trying to commit a kind of genocide and really wipe out the memory of it those is. who disagreed with you. Now, you know, the interesting thing, well, you can see that historically, the genocide approach in the French Revolution. True. What, what did the French revolutionaries do as soon as they won the war? They started killing all of the rich people, they started killing the royal family, all the nobility. They started killing even, you know, clergy and oh, anybody yeah. who was in, you know, what they would have called the 1%. And but even that they went beyond. Like the 50%, right? The yeah. top 50%. They started killing so many people and it was That's why it was a called bloodbath. the reign of terror and the guillotine really was the symbol of the American Revolution. Right. It, it was meant to be a reign of justice. Right. But instead, it became a reign of terror because it became a hateful, vengeful movement 
that sought justice through executing all of its former enemies. And it really had no bounds in the sense of, you know, people started reporting on their neighbors that they were suspicious of them. And so it it started as, like you said, this movement against the 1%, but went so much further. And, and so I think it really speaks to the destruction of a culture through violence where, you know, if you choose that method, beware, because where is it going to stop? Yeah, it's not good. Um Another good example of this uh, genocidal approach to justice mm. uh, was a guy named William T. Sherman. <laughs> uh, not that he, act- well, some people in the South would say he did this with like the burning of Atlanta and, and Columbia and whatnot. But so there was a, a Union general during the Civil War. His name was William T. Sherman. So on the, on the northern side. He was on the northern side. He was the primary commander at the end of the war on the western um, front. While uh, Ulysses S. Grant was commanding the Army of the Potomac, um, or he was he was working with the Army of the Potomac, mm-hmm. technically commanded all Union forces. Sure. But so Sherman's coming in from the west, and he's marching towards Atlanta, and ultimately he wins. It's a successful campaign. This is really what puts the nail in the coffin for the South. But William T. Sherman, he wrote a letter home, and in this letter home, he said. I believe this was to his wife, too. He said, I truly believe that there is an entire generation of people down here. And he's talking about Southerners, the white mm-hmm. Southerners. Um, he says, I think there's a whole generation of people that need to die before we can really fix what's broken here. And, you know, in a certain sense, I'm sure we could say he was right, because immediately after the war, Reconstruction was a bear. It never really worked, especially after Lincoln died. Yeah. Black Americans, former slaves, were never fully integrated as equals into American society. It took another hundred years for the civil rights movement to correct that. Which is abysmal. So in a certain sense, he had a point. Like, Mm -hmm. he wasn't just saying this because he's a genocidal maniac. Yeah. He was commenting on a very real reality in the South. But Abraham Lincoln had the opposite approach. I don't think Abraham Lincoln was blind to reality, but rather he said, you know what? The whole point of this was to save the Union. And the whole point of winning the war must be to heal the divide that exists between North and South. That's the only way forward. Because if we keep killing each other, we just spent four years killing each other. And we've killed more Americans in the Civil War than, you know, I've been killed in all the other wars put together, I believe is still true. So Abraham Lincoln realized that the way forward was not through more killing and executions of perceived guilty parties, but it was through actually trying to begin the... the, reconciliation Mm -hmm. between north and south through forgiveness and grace and healing and guess what when i look at a a statue of robert e lee that's what i see is i see a country that's willing to have grace and give forgiveness Mm -hmm. to someone who yes technically was you know our biggest thorn in the side in a very very bloody and deadly civil war and yet What is our desire today? Our desire today is not celebrate him for the amount of Union soldiers that he killed. Exactly. Our desire today is to recognize this was a hero of the South. Yes. The South, even though they were our lost brothers, they are restored to us once again. And I think that's a really important point to make in directly looking at what Lincoln said. Because before the podcast, you and I were talking about uh, Lincoln's second inaugural address and the way he specifically called on the nation to heal. And I think we forget about this, especially in light of the fact that he didn't lead Reconstruction. Um, But basically, he calls on Americans to have 
malice towards none and charity for all. It's very famous. Uh, everyone knows this line. They know Lincoln said this somewhere, but this mm-hmm. is the context, yeah. right? Because this is his second inaugural, meaning he had just gotten elected president for the second time. It was near the end of the war. And finally, it was it was looking like the North was going to win. It was but just war, a matter of time. It, it hadn't even ended, though, yet. So I think that's a really interesting over. point. But he still had this attitude. But they he, can see the end in the distance. True. Right? So they're about a year away from the war ending here. And Lincoln gives this speech. And in it, uh, he, he zooms way out to the 30,000-foot view. And he takes a look at the entire war and why this happened. Mm. Because he acknowledges, like, look, I'm not going to stand up here and wave a flag and be all (laughs) rah-rah because we are witnessing tragedy. Yeah. There's not much that we can celebrate here. The only thing that we can hope to celebrate is the end of the war when we Mm -hmm. stop killing each other. Yeah. But in the meantime, let's try to make sense of how did we get here? What happened? And he's, this is so beautiful. The second inaugural, guys, is not long. Check it out. Read it. Um, And he's just... Man, does he go deep in not very many words. Um, he, he takes a, um, he tries to take a biblical approach, actually, to the war. And he says, look, both sides are praying to the same God. And both sides are suffering for this original sin of slavery that mm-hmm. Americans uh, allowed to be factored into the original compromise. Which is interesting because when you mentioned that, he's talking about the things that unite us, right? Both good and bad. The fact that we both share in the blame for this heinous, evil system of slavery and we're both having to try to fix it and we just have a completely different approach for what to do and uh, where we're going from here. Yeah, let me just read some of this because it's so powerful. Um, So he talks about how at his first inaugural, he says, mm-hmm. four years ago, I was here giving a speech and it was just before the war began and everyone was worried about the war happening. Some people didn't take it seriously enough or weren't afraid of it. Um, and, you know, the end of the at the end of the day, he says, um, both parties deprecated war, but one of them would rather make war than let the nation survive, talking about the Confederacy, mm-hmm. and the other would accept war rather than let it perish, mm. being the nation. And yeah. the war came. And because how many states uh, seceded right after the election of Lincoln? I mean, it was oh, immediately seven, after. I believe. Yeah. Um, and it I started it seven, with and then South once Carolina. The hostilities began, then another six. And I think you had a total of 13 southern states that seceded overall. So it shows they were not willing to compromise. They weren't even willing to give Lincoln a chance to govern. They were like, we're out if this guy's in. Right. Because we know where he stands on slavery. Right, but when he gave his first inaugural, on Inauguration Day, certain states had already moved to secede. Yep. So then he he writes this. One-eighth of the whole population were colored slaves. And again, he's talking about, like, let's look back four years ago Mm -hmm. and the State of the Union. And he says, one-eighth of the whole population were colored slaves, not distributed generally over the Union, but localized in the southern part of it. These slaves constituted a peculiar and powerful interest. All knew that this interest was somehow the cause of the war. To strengthen, perpetuate, and expand this interest was the object for which the insurgents would rend the Union even by war. While the government claimed no right to do more than to restrict the territorial enlargement of it. So what he's saying is that the South was ready to rip the nation apart and even go to war in order to strengthen, perpetuate, and extend 
slavery. Yeah. Whereas when Lincoln got elected, he wasn't even campaigning on abolishing slavery. That's right. Because he didn't want to start a civil war. Mm -hmm. His whole platform was let's not allow slavery to go into the the Western territories. Yeah, let's Let's stop it here. Let's not let it grow. Yeah, and let's not let it expand further out. And then he continues on. Uh, The part I was talking about is uh, a little further down. He says, both read the same Bible, both both sides in the Civil War. North and South. And both pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. But let us judge not that we be not judged. Mm -hmm. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. Mm. The Almighty has his own purposes. And then he quotes scripture. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. End quote. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which, in the providence of God, must needs come, but which, having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came, shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in the living God always ascribe to him? It's so powerful, his language. It's so great. And then he continues, Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgment of the Lord is true and righteous altogether. Heavy words. And he's dealing with a very, very heavy question, which is, how could our great nation, which started off with so much promise, based on such great ideals, how could it split apart over slavery? Why would some men fight to maintain such a despicable institution? And, and why is God allowing both sides in the struggle to suffer so much? Mm-hmm. It's true. Like, even if you believe, oh, slavery is wrong, well, then why didn't God just you know, end the war in one battle, let the North win nice and easy and everybody goes home. And Abe, um, he puts forward a powerful idea. He says, it's possible, you know, that God might will it that all of the, the gold and all of the wealth piled up off of the, the, the labor of slaves must be destroyed. Hmm. In this campaign. In this war between wow. these two sides. If that is the will of God, that all of that wealth that was wrung out of the the sweat of other men's faces be destroyed along with the institution of slavery, then so be it. I mean, what a way to look at it. I've never picked up on that point before in his wisdom to look back because if I'm not mistaken, he delivered this speech on March 4th, 1865. And he's looking back, like you said, at four years of bitter war and the loss, uh, I mean, I, he probably didn't even have, you know, final numbers yet, but we're talking about over 600,000 Americans from North and South dying. And so, you know, it's not, it's not even just about the gold and the treasure built up from a system of slavery, but it's even um, human life that was 
blood was spilt and human life was uh, paid in order to end slavery. Uh, And yeah, we just gloss over that so much. And I think it's because we're far removed from the conflict and hindsight is 2020. Human life. And that's why he says he's not only talking about the treasure, Mm -hmm. but he also says, and until every drop of blood, which was drawn with the lash, shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. Man, poetic, um, illustrative, powerful words. Lincoln uh, is just a fantastic order. So go back and pour over the speech, guys. Read it. It's fantastic. Yeah, because it's amazing that he can incorporate that kind of language about justice here, right? right? Um, Justice uh, as we undo the evils of slavery in our country. Um, But yet he also still, as he draws to a close in the speech, talks about not condoning hatred. He says, we should have malice towards none and charity for all. And we're not supposed to judge them, you know. Right. We are supposed to come building. together as a nation. So you're like, where are you taking us, Abe? <laughs> yeah. You know, you're talking about Time like, to go kill all what the is God doing here? What's the point of all this? How do we make sense of this? You know what his very next words are? With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. Let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace Mm -hmm. among ourselves and with all nations. Hmm. Because that's painting the way forward. Right. That's saying we don't need to be stuck in the evils of the past, but that's saying... We've gone through this mighty battle. It's drawing to a close. Thank God it's drawing to a close after the horrors of war that we've seen for four years. Now it's time to start binding up our wounds and actually rebuilding the nation. Not just rebuilding the North, right? He says rebuilding the nation and rebuilding this union that we have fought so hard to preserve um, based on our founding He could say, we're about to win because I'm such a great president. (laughs) The best ever. I just won re-election because I'm so awesome. I'm a hero, and we're going to go down, and we're going to make sure that everyone down south that caused this war, they're going to pay, and justice will be done. He doesn't say that. No. He says, rather, it's so amazing, the humility, to the introspection to look and say, you know what? Um, Yes, we pray to God that our side will win, but we also have to acknowledge our side is suffering, and our side... um, is also guilty. We bear the guilt of this original sin in our country. And so, and you notice earlier on he said, um, it's strange that some men would would make their bread, you know, wring their bread from the sweat of another man's brow. And then his, his immediate rejoinder is, and yet let us not judge, lest we be lest judged. Lest we be judged. So what does that mean? What he means by that is that we might be able to look at slavery and the South and say, obviously evil, obviously terrible. Let's go do some justice. Mm-hmm. But Let's he just wants to put a, he wants to pump the brake and say, well, yes, that's clear to us, but let's remember we are not the ultimate judge. Yeah. God is the ultimate judge and justice will be done. Rest assured. And this is another point I think that we've lost in our society, in our cultural conversation, because we're becoming more of a post-Christian nation. But that whole idea that, you know, even when things don't work out perfectly in this world, Mm -hmm. justice will be done in the end. 
because God is waiting there for us on the other side. <laughs> and that gives a kind of peace, right? That it's yeah. not all up to us, that we get to fight our fight um, to uphold you know, human rights right. and to do the right thing. But you know what? Exactly. At the end of the day, it's not up to us. You know, the crazy thing is I think some people would say, oh, you stupid Christians. You just want to ignore what happens in the world and you're going to ignore injustices because you think God will, you know, tidy it all up in the end. No. And, you know, the reality is, is that when you look at secularism play itself out, the fact is that not only do you lose the idea that, like, justice will be done in the end after this life, but you also lose all sense of meaning in this world because if there's no god there is no justice and there's no good and there's no bad and the only thing that we're really arguing about is power and yeah. it's all a rat race you know so if you do have a sense of god and you do have a sense of justice and you do understand that justice will be done one way or another not only does that ensure the triumph of goodness in the end but it also ensures that everything in this world and in this life is infinitely meaningful mm. Yeah, what we do here matters. I mean, one of the verses we constantly come back to um, in Windrows and one of our core values of service is um, Jeremiah 29, 7 that says to seek the welfare of the city in which I have placed you, um, for in it you will find your welfare. And it's crazy because like God's talking to Jeremiah, the prophet, saying this while God's people are actually in exile, like outside of the land, and they're in a foreign nation and there is some persecution, um, and yet he still says, like, we actually need to invest in the time and place and history in which God has put us, and we need to have humility about um, the people around us and the people who've gone before us. Uh, but so speaking of, like, let's connect all of this back to where mm -hmm. we are today, right? Because we, we are not living in 1865, um, right. but we are living in a time where we're trying to understand civil war history. Unfortunately, we're not even being taught. Well, I don't civil think war we do understand well. history. Um, I think there's, a, there are many things working against us. I think the first thing is that Which, we don't understand history very well. True. The second thing is that we don't understand human nature very well. We're very optimistic about human nature, which makes us yeah. very arrogant about our own moral righteousness and very judgmental about yes. everyone that ever came before and was not perfect. And I think that directly connects to the reason we're seeing all these statues torn down is because we look at these people, you know, who have... Uh, real flaws, like vices. And we think, how could we erect a statue to this person? You know, Robert E. Lee, who led the way to um, was preserving a system slavery. of slavery. Literally. Yeah. The guy's literally Hitler. <laughs> literally. <laughs> I think people can I mean, think that. And people might very well, I, th I think there's a lot of reasonable people who would ask, why would we have a statue of someone who not only fought for a bad cause, or say, why would we have a statue of anyone you know, with glaring flaws, mm -hmm. glaring moral failures, yep. you know, and bad this, politics, et cetera, et cetera. Why would we have a statue recently. for that person? And if that's the only way you're going to look at it, then I suppose, you know, that might seem reasonable to most of us. But the reality is, is like, again, show me someone who doesn't have moral failures. Exactly. Show me that person and then we'll go make a statue of them. But I don't think that person exists, you know? Sure, you might find a couple saints, you know? Well, I was say Jesus is a good example, but a lot of people don't want statues of Jesus around. Apparently, there's but the other problems with But the truth is that him. there are so many people in this world who have accomplished amazing and wonderful things yeah. without being perfect. And I really appreciate um, the way that Ben Shapiro talked about it in that 
we don't build statues right, as humans exactly. to people's vices, right? To point out the terrible things that they did. We build statues to celebrate their virtues. And when I walk by, you know, one day with our little boy and we walk by a park with a statue, we're going to go and read the plaque and we're going to see who is this statue of and um, who was this person and what did they do? What kinds of difficult decisions did they make? We're not going to make assumptions about, you know, their circumstances and assume we know better than them. We'll try to put ourselves in their shoes and ask those tough questions. Um, And so I think it's sad connected to, you know, our local history because we have just about 10 minutes from where we live, um, a park that used to be called Robert E. Lee Park and Arlington Hall, right? The funny part is now, like, it's this awkward park where they've removed the statue of Robert E. Lee. Um, He was on horseback on his horse traveler with a Confederate soldier. And um, it's been removed. It was removed in 2017. Um, there was a city council vote. So in some ways it was democratic, but it was rushed through. So it was just really, really kind of a whirlwind. Um, and apparently the city has now sold the statue to get rid of it. Um, and who knows where it is right now. But That the- was just a lot of political butt covering. Yeah. There and- wasn't much of a conversation. It was done really quick and in the dark of it night. It was. You know? But I will say, like, that's the better way to do it is peacefully. I'm yes. glad there wasn't a mob that destroyed the statue. pulling it down with ropes and chains and beating it up and I'm burning it. I'm glad that it. this was done through legal, peaceful means. That's good. You know, so I'm, I'm not that upset about it. But I no. will say, like, we shouldn't act like this isn't a valid conversation to have. Exactly. We should have the conversation about... What do these statues mean to us? What do they symbolize in our community? If you really think that a, a Robert E. Lee statue symbolizes white supremacy and like a whole bunch of people waiting in the woods to come back out and fight for the Confederacy and reimpose slavery, like, no, I don't think there are those I people. I don't see out that there. evidence. Who I, are I've those never people? met those people here. Maybe in there's Dallas. a couple. I don't know. Uh, but but if- when I see it, I see a symbol of a nation trying to heal. It's the North giving forgiveness to the South. It's Americans coming together and saying, you know what? My Lincoln's Abraham. My, my hero is Abraham Lincoln. Your hero is Robert E. Lee. Well, you know what? We got to try to be brothers again. We have to try to be fellow Americans again. And I can actually celebrate a lot about Robert E. Lee because he was a genius. Heck, we celebrate Erwin Rommel, you know? <laughs> Who is a Nazi, literally. Now, the good news is that he also became, you know, he was part of an assassination attempt on Hitler. So he He gets a a lot of political points there as well. But there's plenty of people in history who get a lot of, you know, a a lot of love, not because they were wonderful, sweet people, Mm -hmm. but because they were geniuses of a sort, right? And so that's what I wonder. And they accomplished great things. And so you kind of just have to give credit where credit's due. And to not do that much is just not being fair and objective. And so if I hear someone make fun of Robert E. Lee statues without acknowledging that there would be good reasons to like celebrate Robert E. Lee and honor him as a great general, like if you're not willing to be objective about it, then I don't really trust you to make an objective decision, period. You know? Yeah. And I think you're bringing up a really important point that if we have this view um, of people and of statues, what statues are we going to leave standing if there are no heroes that we actually believe are worth celebrating because they all have flaws? And so that's that's a really important question. The other question that really strikes me is, um, what does this say about how we teach our kids history? Because I think about yes. when you walk to that park now in Dallas, there's this blank 
right? There's the wonderful little pillar, um, not a pillar, uh, basically a sign that welcomes you to the park. And it's just a blank because they got rid of the part that said Robert E. Lee Park. And it just says blank Arlington Hall, um, which was also like where his family lived. So I'm, I'm not sure how that's okay to leave up. But the point being that we're erasing history in a right. sense. And if that's the way we're going to treat this debate, I have serious concerns because I want our son one day, I want our Wenders family, our Wenders leaders to be able to look back at history and look at people like Robert E. Lee who made decisions mm -hmm. that impacted the rest of history. And I want them to be able to put themselves in their shoes and actually wrestle with those questions. I don't want them to ignore those people. Right. And I think, you know, in a sense, I really appreciated the way um, Cardinal Timothy Dolan, who's the Archbishop of New York, um, described this a couple weeks ago um, in an op-ed that he wrote for the Wall Street Journal. And he said, basically, we're this is our version of book burning. We're trying to erase history so that people don't see it. We don't engage with it. Uh, we just don't even have to encounter figures that we disagree with. Um, and we're not even going to debate what we get rid of. We're just going to burn it or tear right. it down. And that's really concerning to me. You're absolutely right. And I loved a line from um, that article that he wrote. Uh, and I have it right here. Oh, good. It was a really great article, by the way, guys. You should go go read it. It was from the end of June. Here we go. Yeah, he says, he writes, God forbid we go through a cultural revolution as China did five decades ago. Beware those who want to purify memories and present a tidy and inaccurate history. Mm -hmm. That's the point. Does truth matter? Yes. If truth matters to you, nothing's going to be tidy. That's just the reality of it. If because you wanna... people aren't perfect. Right, exactly. The world's imperfect. The world always has, well, since the fall. <laughs> and the, <laughs> the world will be imperfect so long as you have imperfect people living in it until Christ returns, okay? That's the fact of the matter. And if you value truth and reality then you have to get used to that very quickly. Um, so when it comes to these statues, you know, if you have a local statue and a lot of people don't like it, have the debate. Yeah. And if the people decide, you know what? Sure, Robert E. Lee, great general, but, you know, he really, uh, he, he, he's not as much of a cultural hero to us as Elvis Presley. Let's put up an Elvis Presley statue instead. <laughs> Okay, fine. Let's vote about it and let's raise the money. Yeah, we got to raise the money. And let's put up a statue of Elvis then. And, you know, if you lose the vote, that's fine. It's I'm not going to be really upset about it. A, a big part of this is just the thinking process of why mm -hmm. are we doing what we're doing, right? And how are we doing what we're doing? And what bothers me is when I see statues being taken down through violence because that's not democratic at all. And that's what's been happening this summer. And it also bothers me, even if you had peaceful doing it peacefully, but if, if you're doing it because you don't understand history, you don't want to understand history. You'd rather paint over history with a neat and tidy but inaccurate version of history that makes mm -hmm. you feel better about yourself because you are simply burning, you know, the books, say, of other people who you deem to be bad. Let's just be honest. Nobody's ever been perfect, except for Jesus. I am not perfect. None of us alive today are perfect. And so hopefully we can live with a little bit of grace and we yes. can be willing to forgive and just, like... Don't be surprised when you find out people are not perfect. That's part of the package. But what we can be surprised by is when people accomplish great things and break the mold once in a while mm -hmm. and do something good worth celebrating. Let's celebrate that. 
Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not a surprise that they're not a perfect person at the end of the day. You know, and going, I'm glad you brought up book burning because I was thinking of, heck, Elvis. If you find out that Elvis Presley did something that's morally questionable in his life, are you going to say, I will never listen to Elvis again. I'm going to make it my life's mission to tear down all the statues of Elvis and I'm going to burn all of his CDs. I'm going to, you know, (laughs) destroy all of his stuff I can get my hands on. Is that really going to be your approach? That would be ridiculous. And guess what? It wouldn't stop with Elvis. It would keep going to absolutely everybody. Yeah. So, so much of this is just living with grace and being able to forgive, not only being able to forgive, being willing to forgive and choosing to forgive others and focus on the good in them. Exactly. Not the bad. To be honest about their story, about the things that they did wrong, and sometimes very serious wrongs, but then to actually look for the best in them. And and again, like you said, we can have the debate. You know, there may have been good reasons to take down that Confederate statue because there was a Confederate soldier and Robert E. Lee was in it um, in Dallas as well. But... But yeah, we're not when we don't even have the conversation. It's irrational. It's undemocratic, it's um, and it's it, it is yeah. really based in ignorance. And so when we see all these statues of people like Columbus and even a Frederick Douglass statue that disappeared and was knocked down a few that weeks made ago, my blood boil. Like what? You know what? I would make that trade in a heartbeat. We, I would be fine. Let's replace every Robert E. Lee statue with a Frederick Douglass statue. Um, I would do that in a heartbeat. So a big part of this is, like, I just don't like it when people are acting primarily motivated by hate. You know, like, I really hate this, so let's tear this down. It doesn't tend to bring out the best in us. Yeah, there's, there's so much wrong with that approach to doing life. That's not yeah. leadership. That's not progress. If you really have um, a, a strong vision of the good and what would be a, a positive step forward for society or your community, hey, let's, let's put up an Aretha Franklin statue. Right? There you go. Let's put up, a, like, especially because I, we haven't talked much about this, but if there are black Americans who say, you know what, every time I pass a Confederate statue or even a name of, of a street that's named after Stonewall Jackson, say, mm-hmm. it gives me the creeps and it's a terrible reminder of what happened to my ancestors, and, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Hey, I accept that. And you know what, if I lived in a community uh, where we have a, a statue of Stonewall Jackson in the, in the park, but most of my neighbors are black and they have to live with that all the time, I would absolutely probably vote to, to take that statue down. You know, so a big part of this is just look at the people around you, look at your community. What is the point of these statues? What do they symbolize? Why do we have them there? Um, and again, I would also want to remind black Americans that the greatest defense we have against repeating the mistakes of American history is learning the lessons from American history. And especially the Civil War and slavery. What is the yes. greatest lesson to be learned? The greatest lesson to be learned is that all men are created equal. And when we deviate from that principle and we try to impose false prejudices and racism on people, you're living outside the lines of reality. Mm-hmm. You're not in accordance with the truth. You're denying the fact that we're all created equal in the image of God. And, and then, you're hurting yourself and others and the world in the process. Exactly. In the end, people die, as you often say. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's bad. It's really bad. It's not meaningless or neutral. It's bad. So that is the lesson that must be learned. And we got to teach that lesson. We got to teach it in our history classes. We got to make sure people understand that. But it can't simply be racism bad. That's not the lesson, really. And it's not helpful, necessarily. The, the lesson is life is good. People are equal. That's the lesson. Because 
again, there's a big difference between all of us being created equal in the image of God with intrinsic value and purpose, no matter what your skin color is. There's a big difference between that and saying, oh, we're just like all randomly equal or, or equally random, <laughs> equally meaningless. Okay, well, we haven't learned the lesson then, if that's mm-hmm. our perspective. So we have to make sure we go all the way, the whole nine yards. What is the lesson here? It's that all life is value. We're all created equal. And to believe otherwise is a lie. And so going back to the question, you know, why bother putting up or keeping up a statue of someone who did bad things? Well, unfortunately, all of us are human. And so there really is no statue we could put up to a person who is perfect yeah. um, other than Jesus. But well, in, people were defacing statues true. of Jesus. Well, apparently he's too white. <laughs> and so that's that's for another podcast. People, what there were there were churches that were driven into and burned down. That's true. There were the statues of, of the Virgin Mary and Jesus that were defaced. Uh, desecrated. Yeah. Which is a horrible evil. It is, and it it really shows that, you know, kind of like we were talking about with the French Revolution earlier, we really don't have any limits um, of respect anymore. And so that's that's not a positive sign for our culture but but that's why we love windrows and that's why um you know we love right. uh getting to talk with uh, you guys and you know with our students about the value of studying history uh, truly and honestly looking at people and their records and learning from their mistakes and being inspired um by their better nature when they absolutely rose to the occasion uh, like lincoln and Douglas, and even Washington, right? Not a perfect man, but the father of our country who took um, great risks to his personal safety um, and really sacrificed so much of his personal life to to actually fight for something greater. Mm. And that's the kind of hero I want for, for our son one day. Someone who is that selfless and that courageous. Amen. For the right cause. That's right. And... All that we can take from history is that which we can use to to be motivated and inspired to do better. Because it's so hard. It really is. Life is hard. Living in a fallen world is tough enough. Trying to make the world a better place, it's not so obvious. And that's that's another part of this as well. Why are people raging against statues? I think a big part of it is that people don't have an objective sense of the good today. We're told everything's relative, right? And so how can I be a hero in my time? It's not so obvious. It's not so clear. You know, once upon a time, we had a a very clear and positive understanding of what is good and true and beautiful. It was wrapped around Judeo-Christianity and the Bible. And and, virtue. And virtue and objective morality. And today, all those things are passe and politically incorrect. And so it's very politically incorrect to say, this thing is good. It's a lot more cool and acceptable to say, all these things are really bad. You know, you think that thing's good? Well, it's not. (laughs) That's shock value is all we care about now. That's how we do our moral conversation today. We have very little, you know, objective foundation for what is good and how can we pursue that. And it's so much more oriented around this causes pain here and this is destructive here and this is oppressive there. And if, if the only way you can talk about morality is through a negative lens like that, that tells you you're already being, your conversation and your outlook is stunted by the bounds of political correctness. And you're never going to get anywhere if you're only allowed to talk about what you hate, you know? That's so right. people today are confused. How can I become a hero? 
And the most obvious way is hate these things, you know? <laughs> but if you are motivated by hatred, you're not going to get anywhere healthy at the end of the day. Martin Luther King knew that. Only love can drive out hate. If you want to make the world a better place, introduce some light and some love into it. So in contrast, I mean, I think about what these great men did with, you know, Washington and Lincoln included, is they didn't approach things with hatred. They approached it with humility and actually fought to get an education to read about great men of history who weren't perfect, uh, but they fought to learn their legacies and they believed that they were standing on the shoulders of giants. They didn't believe they were the best thing since sliced bread. They actually believed in learning and growing from those examples and becoming statesmen in the example of those who'd gone before them. And I, that's exactly what we need today. I mean, right. that's why we talk about history in Windrows. And the, all of that starts with a heart of humility. Yes. Be willing to listen, be willing to read, be willing to learn. And not just to people of your own time and your own generation. Listen to people who came before you. There are many of them. If you throw them all under the bus, you're you're slamming most people who've ever existed. Absolutely. Well, guys, this has been a real pleasure. It's This is a really interesting conversation. Hopefully you've gathered from us that, you know, it. we have a pretty nuanced view of it. And I think most people should strive to have a nuanced view of, of most things that are this controversial. But we welcome your thoughts, too. So we'd love to hear your take and um, what you guys think about the recent controversy and destruction Absolutely. of statues. You know how to reach out to us. Otherwise, we look forward to being back here with you soon at Compass Point. But thank you for listening. And remember, your life is value. So keep fighting the good fight. Take care, everybody. Thanks, guys. Thank you.